Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is Birth of the Beatles, a bona fide Beatles biopic made in 1979. As the on-screen intro at the start of the film explains, the following is a dramatisation using actors of the early career of the Beatles. It is based on factual accounts including the recollections of former Beatle Pete Best, as well as other sources. The music sung during this period by the Beatles was recorded for this dramatisation by the group Rain. Now, just quickly on that bit weird that they mentioned the actual tribute band on the on-screen disclaimer at the start of the film i guess for clarification's sake it's worth pointing out that despite this being the only beatles biopic that was made when all four band members were alive and that meant that all four were around to actually aggressively oppose the making of the film um, and its release it did actually manage to secure rights to have actual lennon and mccartney songs in the soundtrack so I wonder if this mention of the uh, the tribute backed rain in the uh, on-screen introduction is some kind of like legal disclaimer, sort of a weird sort of grey area place that the film sort of finds itself in. Yeah, I wonder. It's an odd thing to start with. And it does, the word disclaimer is a good one. Like it does feel like a disclaimer. Yeah. There are very few, well, I mean, so <laughs> films do start with a disclaimer sometimes, but you know, they tend to be um, for the avoidance of um, a criminal action of some kind, or, or you know, it's not setting up on its right tone, is it? Like, no, exactly. <laughs> you know, you think, oh, this this will be a laugh. Uh, yeah. You know, this this but, is a, this is all about uh, it's all about my favourite band, and now it's oh god, 
<laughs> well, is this okay? Yeah, yeah. Is it legal for me to watch this? Yeah, but also those disclaimers are always diversions uh, depicted in this film are fictionalized. Yes. Right? Whereas calling out, by the way, the versions of the Beatles songs you're hearing at the moment aren't the actual ones performed and released by the Beatles. Yeah. That feels weird to me. Like you just, yeah. that, you know, that's what the credits are for. Yes. Yeah. And, th- and actually that feels like the kind of thing that they were... It was it feels like a stipulation put on them? Yes, yeah, I wondered that as well. Yeah, I guess so. So my understanding now, I'm not a music publishing expert, as you know. Um, <laughs> there are other Beatles podcasts um, that you would be much better off listening to for the absolute chapter and verse on the history of Northern songs and how publishing rights work. But uh, in 1979, Northern songs was owned by ATV still. Lennon McCartney did not have a controlling interest in it. My assumption, therefore, is that Lennon McCartney, if they had wanted to block the use of Lennon and McCartney's songs in this film, would have been unable to. Um, mm. But I, 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 I don't know. I don't know exactly how. They would works. have been able to block using their own recordings or their own performances of them, perhaps, and as a as the holding the songwriting uh, copyright on them, as opposed to the publishing copyright. I, I'm, I'm not sure to no. be honest, but so, yeah. I, 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 I feel like it's split between the two. Like you, you know, so ATV would have owned the publishing rights uh, for the songs, which allows the you know someone, uh, allows the um, another band or actor performer to actually perform those same songs. Yeah, um, which is which is what, obviously what we have here, and more or less they're like they're performed pretty much as close as possible to the original recordings, I feel like. Yeah, films. yeah, I think so. They're performed like, very competently, and I think in terms of the singers uh, impersonating the Beatles' voices are doing a pretty good job. But actually, the, uh, one of the things about it is that um, it, it, it it's covering... It, I think we'll talk about this in a bit more depth later, but mm. it is covering very similar ground to, to Backbeat, which yeah. is a, a film we've already um, done an episode about. Um, and so it's sort of interesting to compare the two. And one of the main ways in which they're very different is the use of the music or the performance of the music. Backbeat, because it's got uh, those songs are sort of performed uh, by artists with a sort of punk ethos, if you like, artists from the sort of uh, the grunge era mm-hmm. at the time. These are not at all. They're, these are very, very polite renderings <laughs> yeah. of the, the sort of rock and roll songs the Beatles were playing at the time. And so... There's a scene near the start where you're supposed to be shown, you know, sort of, oh, wow, these guys are so much different to everything else around. So they go into, they're auditioning for something or other. Mm. And there's one of those Shadows type bands on before them and they're all doing dance steps. Yeah. And this is supposed to juxtapose them with the Beatles then coming on and sort of tearing the roof off it. And they play Dizzy Miss Lizzie, I think. And it's perfectly good, but there's no energy to it there's no all of its rough edges have been um shaved off and so yeah. you don't think to yourself oh this is um oh i can completely see why um uh, why they you know, why they sort of took liverpool by storm and, yeah. and became such a big thing you know yeah no that's a really good point because uh, yeah i don't you don't get that sense at all no uh, and and so going back a bit the the film depicts the Beatles in their at the start of their career so from the time which they get uh, the gig to go to Hamburg yeah their time spent there which is obviously where it sort of overlaps um significantly with Backbeat uh, and then their return to Liverpool they're signing with Brian Epstein 
um, and they release their first singles, uh, and then it ends with them about to take America by storm. Yeah, it ends with Ed Sullivan performance, Ed first one, yeah. Now, the other point to make about the music is that while it has successfully secured uh, whatever rights they are in order to be able to have Lennon McCartney songs, it's used, the, the songs are quite anachronistic. Yeah, so it's certainly the... They're playing... I saw her standing there at the Kaiser Keller, which is a song that they wouldn't write for a year or so. George is playing Don't Bother Me in Hamburg, which I think he writes in 64, maybe. You know, it's... um, Yeah, yeah, and there's Ask Me Why as well as a song that's in there. I couldn't tell you when that was written, but, you know, I don't think they had it at that point. But also, they in Hamburg, they weren't performing original songs at all, basically. Yeah. It was all covers, you know. I think that uh, John and Paul essentially stopped writing songs while they were in Hamburg. Right. More or less. I, did, you know, I don't know how deliberately, but I think essentially they didn't write any when over there. I think mainly just because they were busy and tired. Didn't have know. time, right? Yeah, didn't exactly. Have time, yeah. You know. So, yeah, I think the idea that they were playing original songs at that time is not true, but, you know, it's not... I was thinking about this and I thought, well, you know, it, it, it's an obvious anomaly to point to... But you know, it's not it's not the end of the world of putting a song in a scene when it hadn't been written. But uh, but I wonder why why do it? What's it designed to achieve? I, I think I always have to remind myself to give the benefit of the doubt a little bit for films made in this era mm. because the only thought that probably went into it was this is a going to be a, a Beatles biopic. We need to try to give the audiences songs that they recognise yeah. um, as being officially uh, by the Beatles and they can play it. And the other thing that I always had to remind myself is that films that were made at this time weren't really expected to be seen beyond its release at the cinema. Yeah. It wasn't really a big enough sort of home entertainment movement for the filmmakers to expect these films to be watched over and over again on repeat and be picked apart. In the way that we've built an entire podcast around, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you you can kind of allow it the uh, the liberty, I think, of of in, including Beatles songs for the sake of it being a, a film about the Beatles, and that that would be a nice thing for audiences to see in cinemas at the time. Yeah, I think so, and, and I think also like uh, it's it, it's hard to watch these things and think. Um, well, there was you know there was no there's obviously no sort of internet culture around this time. There was no what for people to sort of uh, to pick holes in it what would the forum have been for them to do so you yeah. know um you know fan, fanzines or something like that i don't <laughs> I, I don't know i think possibly just letters <laughs> just letters. sending lots of letters just to people, people. <laughs> <laughs> just writing letters to each other yeah. just saying did you notice that they played ask me why <laughs> on stage in hamburg in 1961 how preposterous <laughs> <laughs> you're sincerely <laughs> Uh, yes, that's exactly the kind of thing you'd have done. <laughs> there is a, there's another element to this film as well, which I think is really, uh, which was pointed out in that introduction, uh, which I think is really felt uh, in the film, and that is um, serving as technical consultant on the movie is Pete's best, or yeah. as I think as I messaged you the other day, Pete's biased, <laughs> because. <laughs> I just- I thought that was a typo, actually. Did you? It, it didn't, you know, it didn't even occur to me. My but... very, very clever joke. Yeah, it's a very um, clever joke. Yeah. yeah, so Pete Biased seems to be telling a slightly different version of events um, around his role in the group and his subsequent sacking of the group, which differs from the one that we, I think, generally understand from everyone else involved. Uh, yes, but uh, it's 
it's pretty he's been pretty consistent with his version of events in his defense which i think is fair enough and he, who's to say he's not it's it's not true what he says you know mm. so the film you're quite right absolutely takes the stance that Pete was unfairly sacked and i don't think anyone disputes that his sacking was quite unceremonious and not very sensitively handled mm. and i suppose at this point 1979 so Pete would still have Pete was sort of working for Liverpool Council or something like that at this mm. point, you know, and it had been for years. As far as he was concerned, that was his career. He hadn't made any money off the Beatles, and he didn't until the release of Anthology when the versions of Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You appeared on that with his drumming on it, and he was entitled to money, you know, and mm. he, made, he made some money off that, and good for him. At this point, I guess he, if he was going to quite justifiably make any money from his experiences, he could really only do it by doing things like this, being a consultant on a film um, or sort of going to Beatle conventions. Conventions. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know, going to Beatle conventions, uh, that sort of thing. And and it's fair enough for him to put his side of the story. But yes, it, it, it what it basically shows is that, that his drumming was absolutely fine. Mm. I think that there's a, when he's sacked, he says, but George Martin said, you know, my drumming was fine. You know, George, you know, EMI liked my drumming, I think is what he said, which is not true. Yeah, it's that's just, right. That, I mean, that's the opposite of true, you know. <laughs> so, um, False? And, and yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so it may be that he genuinely didn't know that. Maybe he had been told that by Brian Epstein, EMI liked your drumming. Right. Uh, I, or it may be that that had been refuted in biographies already by then. I'm not completely sure. No, that's a really good point. So the version of events that we... No, understand now maybe that wasn't revealed until after this film was made possibly yeah because this the thing i mean as we were saying looking at these stories uh, afresh by sort of doing these episodes as we discovered with the backbeat episode it it, it does make you realize that it, you've had so many tellings of these stories mm-hmm. um that um they have formed your impression of what the events actually were as you know i think we both found that you know, when we thought of Stuart Sutcliffe, we generally thought of um, Stephen Dorff yeah, in, in yeah, Backbeat because yeah. that's where our impression of him first came from. You know, and so it's a similar thing here. The it's it it is it, in my mind the story of the Beatles and Hamburg and Pete Best sacking is just sort of set in my head. But um, uh, but it's useful to sort of interrogate where those tellings come from because and and at what point those narratives. Uh, it became to you know sort of came to predominate you know and so I, I think that's fair i think that's probably the biggest part of the story the biggest problem i guess with that scene is that as unceremonious as the sacking was in real life it's unceremonious in the film as well like the, the film doesn't really build up yeah. to that and i and i you know one of the problems i have with the film overall is that as I feel like this is a point I make in lots of biopics, but this film is very much a chronological telling of events yeah. as opposed to it telling a, a complete story. Yes. It doesn't feel like there is a uh, like a conflict and a resolution mm. that comes out of this, this, this movie. Yeah. If you're going to have Pete Best as your technical consultant, maybe his is the story that you tell. Yeah. You know, like that. And, and then the way that was handled, the way that, um, he his 
you know historic i know i realize this is a different movie altogether but like that would make sense for a film and a story to be told in a film but this kind of leaves as it's picking up and and these these big significant events that happen in the Beatles career like his sacking like Stuart Sutcliffe's death they don't actually feel like they have any real impact in this film because they're not vital to Ooh. what the film is trying to do which is just basically explore what the Beatles did in that yeah. time period yeah no you're right it's uh yeah it's the it's the Wikipedia page on the screen <laughs> it's exactly really. that yeah and and yeah no you're right like yeah if you're gonna have uh, telling the Pete Best story it'd be interesting you know it could be like you know, like the the wrestler, you know, the Darren Ar- you know, yes. Darren Aronofsky film, like the nearly man kind of thing. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like I could have been part of the biggest thing in the world and you know, and now here I am working for the council. Like that's uh, that's an interesting film. It's not this film, but no, it's, it's it, but you know, it's <laughs> it, but it, it but and also, I mean, that that is an entirely different film than the prospect because obviously what they want to do here is um make the the Beatles biopic, you know. Yes. And I I think the um uh, just a couple of last points on on uh, Pete Best. I, I feel like you have to take the version, some of the versions of events that that feature him prominently with a pinch of salt, because he's the one who's advising on them. Mm. But there are other sort of bits in the film that I picked up on that felt like they really showed him in a in a very good light. Mm. And I was like, is is that is that because he's fed that in? So there was a point in the film where they made it as made it seem as though he was the real heartthrob of the band, and yeah. Um, uh, and that that might have caused some jealousy. Uh, well, it's something that Pete Best, I think, accuses accuses Lennon of mm. uh, at some point, and they kind of like banter about it. Like it's always like sort of split second moment. There is truth in him being thought of as the heartthrob. Well, is there right? Okay, this is what I'm to show for you. And and I, I know that there is truth in the backlash that they had at the cavern when yep. he left and and Ringo replaced him yeah i'm not sure it was quite the same as like you know them turning up in the car and everyone protesting outside and things but but certainly yeah so that whole chance pete forever ringo never all that stuff yeah um that was all true but no i mean certainly it is true that he was considered like the good looking one he had a, a big sort of brooding quiet uh thing going on um and uh and the girls in the audience were were really keen on him but it's not necessarily true his that that's why he was sacked that the other Beatles were jealous of the attention yeah, he was sure. getting so that that's his version of the events it's not the other Beatles is it true that all Ringo had to do to win over uh, that a really aggressively violent crowd was play a prolonged extended drum roll <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, I'm sure it's Does not. Because that seemed very strange. But it's interesting that... Uh, I found that scene quite interesting in that Pete is introduced as a character uh, by playing like a really rad drum solo, you know? <laughs> and it's like, hey, who's yes, this guy? Right. You know? And yeah, then they say, they say, like, do you want to be in the group? And he says, oh, well, only if it's going to be a proper thing. Like, you know, whereas yeah. I, I think actually... Uh, they needed someone to go to Hamburg with. They had to have a drummer, otherwise they couldn't get the gig. They had to find someone quickly. They knew Pete as Mona Best's son, who had sort of been in bands and uh, and, and had a drum kit. And you know, as far as they were aware, was a competent drummer. And that was kind of it, really. Mm. You know. Um, but yeah, I thought it was interesting the way they juxtaposed that with Ringo doing something similar. Um, this sort of long drum solo thing that sort of commands the audience's attention. Because I feel like um, uh, they did almost, you know, if you take this as like Pete Best's story, um, there seemed to be some acceptance in that, that uh, this guy was, you know, 
was a better drummer or at least as good a drummer mm. uh, and brought something uh, to the Beatles as well. Um, so, but you know, who who knows whether that was inf- his influence or not? Yeah, there's no way of, of sort of isolating what he would have fed in, is there? No. Um, my other favourite moment, if you if you view it through the lens of Pete Best has informed this film, and and this won't have been the case, but I liked the idea that he was the one who um, uh, insisted that this scene was told in this way. Uh, is when Stuart Sutcliffe is set upon. Um, and beaten up in the alleyway yeah. and Pete Best comes on and he's the one who lands the punches yeah, ducks the... out the way he's the real action hero yeah, of the yeah, group yeah. everyone else rushes to <laughs> Stu's aid and Pete's like seeing off the uh, attackers like, up the stairs and stuff and he's like yeah. I really love the idea of Pete going no that's how it went that's how it went you have to make sure make sure that I'm the one who did it. I hit him twice yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and actually like I think I think I had my shirt off actually like, you know. <laughs> yes, exactly yeah and then I think I kissed a girl straight afterwards like <laughs> Um, yeah, I really hope that was the case. That's what happened. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You mentioned before about how certain allowances would have to be made for a film that is trying to do this particular job. Yeah. And that job is trying to be a biopic of the Beatles at a certain stage of their career. Yeah. Um, we've talked lots of times, probably on this podcast, certainly off many, many times about what a good version of a Beatles biopic looks like. Yeah. How close do you think this film comes to that? Well, I think, I mean, th- this is the closest thing to a Beatles biopic that exists, I think. In More the, so than Backbeat. Yes, because it, it it's not just covering... Well, so but Backbeat is quite self-contained yeah. in that it's covering Liverpool, Hamburg, and then there's a thing at the end saying John Lennon would go on to do all this and be amazing. Yeah. And what this does, it ends at a, it has to choose a point at which to end, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it ends at Ed Sullivan, which is a good a good point, as good a point as any to say this is you know Beatlemania is about to start properly or as a global thing and you know they went on to do this so it, it it's the only thing that is even attempting to cover their story as a whole excluding documentaries of course you know i mean so it's yeah. the only narrative film that is that is even starting to do that as far as i'm concerned it's inevitable that there will be a sort of beatles narrative biopic at some point mm. studios have seen how well bohemian rhapsody did and Rocket Man, it it must be on the cards. There must be scripts going round, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and the big question is, how do you do that? Now those those films, even Bohemian Rhapsody as a comparison, although it's about a band, 
but it focuses much more on Freddie Mercury than it does the other three. And it is easier to do it through the lens of one person's story um, than it is through a whole band's story. Now, the Beatles yeah. are would be underserved by that approach because they're all individually so fascinating as far as I'm concerned. And it would be, I suppose the obvious way to do it in a similar way to Bohemian Rhapsody is that John would be the sort of main character and, you know, you've got, and obviously the the backstory for him with the childhood trauma, it's sort of tailor-made for that. But, I mean, then it would just be a sort of John Lennon story with the other guys as side people you know so we've kind of done that three times now on this podcast alone like you've got backbeats john lennon takes the um state center stage there yeah. obviously nowhere boy is about john lennon yeah. um but that is you know it sort of takes a similar approach and now this one yeah right? this puts more emphasis on john's role than anybody else yeah just but very very lightly yeah yeah but that, but that's the thing i mean so what birth of the beatles does is it it doesn't take any of their story. It it, it doesn't. It, there's lots and lots of sort of uh, banter and back and forth and stuff like that. Um, so you get a bit of an impression of them as a group. Um, you get no impression of any of them as individuals. And so when it does, uh, it, when it covers the same ground as Backbeat, so Stu's death and how John reacted to that. Here he sort of makes a speech on stage that says he was my best friend and now he's dead. And you think, oh, was he your best friend? I didn't. Yes, yeah, I didn't, exactly. I didn't, didn't, didn't come across at all. No, I had yeah. no, no idea. And I mean, as far as I'm concerned, doing the Beatles story in a sort of two-hour narrative film is basically impossible. If you did it in a six-episode TV series or something like that, you'd have a shot at it. So this is this. Here's my pitch for the only way I can be happy or satisfied with a decent Beatles biopic. Yeah. Do it like The Crown. Yeah. Do it like over a long period, like be committed to doing several seasons, each covering a different period in the Beatles' yeah. career and life, and then you have you have uh, the territory there to explore each of its different phases. Yeah, that, that are all worthy of their own stories being told. But you can also have those individual episodes that pick out the mini stories that happen in between them along the way. Yeah, I feel like that's the only way I'd, I'd be ha- happy with that. Who yeah. knows whether that might ever see the light of day or something like that but that would be that would be my um the only way i can see any overall beatles biopic being sensibly made like a, yeah. a two-hour film just can't can't cut it no no exactly because what again what story are you telling there yeah no no exactly but i wonder whether like as beatles fans we like we only think that way because we're beatles fans and actually you know if you were to try and do a rolling stones biopic for example like in my head that feels quite easy um, because you've got, you know, you've got some, you've got some peaks and troughs and whatnot. Um, but narratively, that doesn't feel too difficult. But maybe that's only because I, I'm, I'm not a big Rolling Stones fan and I'm not particularly invested in their story and I don't find their story all that fascinating. I, I, I feel like the the question is less about whether or not you can pack everything into a film and more about what is the actual story you're trying to tell in that film. Mm. So with Freddie Mercury, obviously, it's it's his own you know tragic tale of AIDS and you know succumbing to to that. And with Elton John, it's about him overcoming drug addiction, alcoholism, like yeah, you know, yeah. so many ways. What is the story you tell in the Beatles' career that spans their their whole from start to finish their whole career? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know what you lead with on that. I don't because I, the you know it it would be what how they become friends 
they start off with friends, how they join, and then how they eventually split up. Like, yeah. There isn't really an individual through line that, that carries, I think, all the way across that period. No, that's true. And, and I guess it's just because Lennon's story is the one that has been told the most. Yeah. It just seems like the obvious way you would do it. But yeah, I just the, the sort of pain and trauma he went through... And then, you know, there are kind of obvious parallels when he meets Yoko and, the, you know, and he was sort of not even especially quiet about the fact that he sort of saw her as a, 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 as, as a mother figure in some mm-hmm. ways, you know. Um, so, you know, guy loses his mother, guy eventually finds a woman who he treats a bit like his mother. <laughs> you know, that, that is a bit of a through line. But then the, you can really only do that by having John the main character and the other three are kind of side... Yeah, you know, side characters really, which, which is be... kind of where this film lands by default, I think. But, I suppose yeah. Um, yeah. only because the film presents the very real depiction of Lennon as the leader of the band. Yeah. Um. So I think it makes sense that he ends up having a bit more, a slightly more commanding presence in certain scenes than the other three. So think of how the film ends, and it ends with Epstein talking to him about fame and. Um, conquering America. Mm. Um, Lennon is the one who goes to see um, Epstein and finds that he's been beaten up and talks to him about uh, about that and about how they would, always knew he was gay. Yeah, um, he's the one who has those scenes. The other, the other four yeah. don't. So it feels like he's a bit more bigger presence. Yeah, which leads to I think one of the biggest problems that the film has, which is Lennon isn't very good. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> the portrayal of Lennon isn't very good. No, and one of the main problems with that is um the the actor Stephen McKenna who's playing him is 35 and he's playing a 20 year old John Lennon he's 35 and looks 40 as <laughs> yes. well <laughs> yes and and actually so it's not it's not just that you look at him and think oh he looks a bit old it's that uh, it completely and utterly changes the tone of almost every scene he's in mm. the way the other beatles interact with him now it's certainly true that the others Paul especially has said we all used to look up to him. He was the leader, and he was a bit older, and we kind of all wanted to please him a bit. That's absolutely fine. But here, he is so much older than than the rest of them that it it, it just feels like he, he's sort of their uncle or something like that. Yeah. And there's a scene the scene where Stu comes in to talk to John in his bedroom in Hamburg and tells him that he's going to leave the group and he's going to stay in Hamburg with Astrid. John is sort of sitting on his bed, writing, and uh, he sort of tells Stu about Preludin, and he sort of offers him. Uh, he's got like a little jar of them, and he says, uh, "I have one of mine." And it's it's sort of like a kindly teacher. Um, <laughs> yes, that's exactly what and, it is. And then just just the yeah. way that he's sitting there, and the way he looks at Stu, it's like he might as well be looking at him over the top of his half moon glasses. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly it, it, right. Like sort of kindly uncle receiving a, a sort of n- <laughs> nervous. Nephew, and it, it it is so completely different. He plays him sort of slightly. He plays John kind of slightly camp as well, which you know John could be you know quite camp in his sense of humour sometimes. But uh, the way McKenna plays him is like that's a sort of uh, it, that's just sort of the way he is all the time, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And he just doesn't fit in any scene he's in. I mean, you know? You, I know we 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 haven't really dug properly into I guess the comparisons between this film and Backbeat, but. Um, you said at the time about how Ian Hart obviously uh, often plays Lennon as more serving. Mm. There's not an ounce 
of that in this portrayal. No, like he's he's very much like the amiable uncle. Um, yeah. is exactly is, is exactly that. He doesn't even seem necessarily quick witted. No, either he's, he's very sort of generally quite happy to you know be with his friends and he's, yeah. he's having a lovely time he's having a lovely time this John Lennon is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 because yeah, then is he packing for Hamburg or he's telling Mimi he's going to Hamburg for the first time and she says something about Julia who is by now like dead like recently dead mm. and John says and John sort of mentions her name and just sort of looks like mournfully out of the window and then that's it like yes, that, that is the whole mention of Julia and uh, the effect she's had on him and stuff. Now, I mean, listen, to be fair, as we were saying, if you know, this isn't a giant John Lennon biopic, it's a Beatles biopic. So maybe they're thinking, well, we don't want to focus too much on this guy. We don't want to get into his backstory too much because he's not the main character. But you've got to do something. Yeah. You know? And Paul doesn't get a moment like that. No, no, that's true. Yeah. about the cast i really enjoyed playing a spot the low-level tv actor celebrity <laughs> yeah uh, throughout there was quite a lot yeah lots of soap actors involved yep is it nick cotton nick cotton from eastenders playing yeah. playing george playing george that was a, that's quite a good shout yeah yeah Others? any other faves yeah. I, I like seeing nigel havers pop up as george martin i thought that was really good casting <laughs> that, actually. Was, that was good casting yeah that was great so there's a guy there's a guy the guy who plays the kid who goes into nems and asks for for my Bonnie, oh yeah, who's a who's a is Liverpudly an actor, and, and so uh, in in real life that kid's name is well known, but I can't remember it right now. But um, he is played by one of the guys who went on to be one of the Scousers in Harry Enfield. Oh really? Yeah, I, rec- <laughs> I recognised him straight away. Oh right, I could really you know. I, I didn't spot it straight away. Actually, it was only afterwards that I realised it was him. But uh, when the Beatles don't have a drummer during their audition, a guy has to step up and perform with them. That's Robert Glenister. Oh. Who's obviously been in loads of TV stuff yeah. um, recently. And I think my favourite spot in, in this was that one of the early club bosses, it might have been guy who owned Club Keller, was right. Colonel Kirk von Strom from Hello Hello. <laughs> oh, so is he playing some... Always a pleasure to see. Yes, yes. Br- he's... Bruno Koshmida. Has he got the monocle, he... that guy? No, it's not him. No, oh. it's the, um, the bigger, grumpier, oh, more okay. overweight guy. Oh, uh, okay. Maybe Horst Horst Facker. I'm not sure they they actually give those characters names, or they're supposed to be. Like, I um, think, um, yeah, I can't remember what his um, actor's name is, but it was really good to see. It. It's always a pleasure to see anyone from LOLO pop up <laughs> in any film you watch. Yeah, yeah. But also, talking of screen talent, here's a question for you. Something very, very, very exciting for me happened in this film within the first scene, yeah. or when the credits came up. Yeah. Can you guess what that might have been? No, I don't think I can. I'll give you a clue. It's the director right. of this film. Yeah. The director of this film, is, I mean, it's not even a clue anymore, I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> right. Very, very exciting. <laughs> when this popped up, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be, I'm really interested in seeing this film now suddenly. Okay. Not that it wasn't before. The director is Richard Marquand. Yeah. Who we all know has been equally as exciting <laughs> as I am. Yeah. For four years after this film was made, he went on to direct Return of the Jedi. Did he? Yes. <laughs> I know, right? Wow. 
So he was, it's, there's a lot of conjecture around how him directing Return of the Jedi was really just him being a voice piece to filter what George Lucas wanted the whole way through. So it was kind of like a yes man for George Lucas. So yeah. George Lucas did the first Star Wars film. He got his old film teacher, Irving Kirshner, to direct Empire Strikes Back. Right. And then Richard Marquand was sort of brought in, hired to to, um, to direct Return of the Jedi. Wow. So yeah, four years before Star Wars Episode Six, Return of the Jedi, yeah. the director was... Making Birth of the Beatles, so I was very excited. I was like, "This is brilliant! I'm gonna, I'm gonna really see where the, the talent from, you know, uh, a franchise that I love and adore and have all my life, um, where yeah. the talent for one of those important installments, uh, how that shines through in this film." Yeah, but yeah, this kind of film, especially this period film, that's kind of gone a little bit underserved. I always enjoy playing spot the spot the name that I know from elsewhere. Uh, yeah, I could, yeah. So Richard Marquand is not a name I, I would have known. I couldn't have told you who directed Return of the Jedi. It, it it's sort of interesting to be given this job it would have been a big deal right to be given the birth of the beatles directly yeah that's true yeah that's true pretty big deal i yeah. would have thought even though i mean this so sort of 79 was a point where the beatles were sort of quite unfashionable in general people weren't really listening to them you know the sort of punk punk movement had kind of dismissed them and it wasn't until john died a year or so later that they you know they started to be sort of reappraised and become a bit more popular again uh, but even so it would have been quite a big deal to be uh, given a job like this and, and looking at his um, filmography he hadn't really done much before he was given this either um mm. done filmed a few shorts a few episodes of tv uh, and there was one movie that he'd made before this uh, which looks to me like it is a pretty ropey horror film right called the legacy so yeah, but you're right. Yeah, it's interesting that he was given the task of being in charge of you know what what at that point was the first Beatles biopic. Talking of it being a Beatles biopic, we sometimes mention this before in in other films like this, where sometimes there are sort of fun little Easter eggs, um, some sort of nods that happen in the film to what we know about the Beatles and and who they eventually become. Did you spot any? Well, I spotted one that was uh, what, what they were trying to do. And then there's the thing, you know, the where are we going, fellas, to the top of most of the pop most, right? Yes. So, th- so they do that, but they get it wrong, and they say, "Where are we going, fellas?" To the very top. Yeah. And and I thought, oh, that's weird. And then, and then they do it again later. Yeah. And when they start doing it, I was, I was thinking, oh, maybe they're going to do the proper version now because it's like showing them how that phrase has developed over time or whatever. <laughs> uh, no, they just they just did <laughs> the same thing again. And so I was then I was thinking, why? So either they didn't know that was the phrase, because, yeah. ag- again, like I say, we, it's 1979, we didn't necessarily know all this Beatle trivia that we do now. Maybe it's that. You know, maybe it's actually Pete Besser just misremembered it. <laughs> yes, yeah. Ma- maybe, they, maybe they never really said it around Pete Best because he wasn't really part of the gang. And he just <laughs> he was always them. just out of earshot. Yeah. <laughs> he knew there was something them. about being at the top. But... <laughs> he heard them in, a, like, in another room. It was like, oh yeah, I think it was that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think to the top, to the very top, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I seem to remember them saying something about going to the top as Brian Epstein <laughs> was telling me I'm no longer in the band. They're in the room next door, <laughs> chanting about being. But but that was strange because it's not like it was. Well, so, yeah, that is the most likely explanation that actually they didn't. It, it was a misremembering by someone or other of what of the thing they used to say to each other. Because it's not like the phrase is copyrighted or anything, and they had no, to yeah, use a different right, yeah. version of it or something like that. You know, 
For the purposes of this dramatization, the phrase go into the top <laughs> has been performed by Rain. <laughs> there was only one scene where I, I felt like th- there's a couple of things that have been shoehorned in here badly. Mm. And it was right at the start. They're hanging out. I think they were having fish and chips or something in a graveyard. Yeah. And one of them, I think it might be Lennon, was lying across um, a gigantic tomb. Yeah. And there were massive letters on the side saying Rigby. Were there? Yeah. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> Which is brilliant. Right. And okay. in that same scene, they're, I think they're, they're kind of lamenting not being famous or hoping they're going to be famous or not really you know, being as big as they want to be right now. Yeah. And one of them says, it's got to get better, right? And the other one says, can't get no worse. Yeah. And just a few things like that. And because that happened so early on, I was like, oh, it's going to be one of those films where this kind of stuff happens all the way through. And I think that I didn't really notice anymore. Yeah, no, you're right, actually. Yeah. Yeah, because we've spoken about this a few times before, haven't we, on on other episodes of this whole thing of um, even Backbeat does it where it has a a few lines where people say like the titles of songs uh, in conversation years before they would actually be songs as a nice little Easter egg. Um, And it can get a bit grating but yeah you're right I thought exactly the same thing oh this is going to be a theme throughout the whole thing yeah. it just sort of drops it you know yeah um, completely gives it up yeah I thought that was the only like sort of clever thing that the script writer had, had put in and then didn't think of any more <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> going back to Backbeat now we, we, let's just cover it off because I, I did find it interesting I, I knew going into this film that it was going to cover much of the same ground that Backbeat does um, what 15 years later or um, or however much time has passed. I was surprised when I was looking at reviews of this film, how, uh, so current reviews of this film, not from when it was released, but current reviews of the film, almost all of them from critics and fans and, you know, audiences alike, almost all of them mentioned Backbeat. Yeah. So it just feels like a comparison of the two is inevitable. Yeah. Because it covers the same ground. Yeah. What do you think... This one gets right compared to Backbeat, or do you think it gets wrong compared to Backbeat? Well, I think the, the, the music is the main thing, as I say. It's it, it's sort of entirely bloodless and, and passionless, and you don't get any sense of the excitement that they generated in those clubs at mm. all. I think oof, it does have a good sense of the interplay between them as friends, uh, the, sort of, the, the way they would riff off each other. I feel like a lot of that actually reminded me of Help. Yeah. Uh, when we were watching that, like the, this, I was thinking, oh, you know, like in lots of uh, in a lot of films, you'll have um, the kind of like quick back and forth between friends, and it's so rapid fire that you think, well, this this doesn't feel natural because it feels that you've learnt your scripted lines yeah. and you're you know saying them straight off the bat, and as a result, it feels you know performative, and it feels like that in this film, but actually. The impression I get is that they were just like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get, I get that impression to some degree. I mean, you see it in, um, you see it in Get Back, don't you? Of course. You know, yes, exactly. Sort of riffing off each other, but it's not, it's not quite the same as they have a shared sense of humour in a way you can see would have been quite difficult for outsiders to penetrate, mm. as Michael Lindsay Hogg discovers in Get Back. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's just very, very difficult. To, to, to sort of Quite penetrate devastatingly <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> to sort of penetrate that inner circle of you know and it must have been so hard you know um mick jagger used to call him the four-headed monster you know but and uh, the you know the, that thing of just this is obviously a gang a unit and it must be hard for anyone else to to get in but uh and, and so i suppose you do get a bit of a sense of that in birth of the beatles and i mean not that i think any of their 
the sort of banter dialogue is actually very funny. Mm. Um, but you do get a, at least a bit of a, a a bit of a sense of um, what they were like in that regard, I guess. Yeah. And you don't get that in Batbeam. You're right. Like there's there's a bit more. Not so much, no. Because there, there's some Lennon has more sort of like you know Lennonian. I think you yes. <laughs> you um, created. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you termed uh, in a previous episode Lennonian witticisms that he has. But there's there's not necessarily a, a group dynamic that explores that kind of yeah banter. Yeah. So you know, this film does something good. Yeah, I think um, I, I think also the uh, the staging of the Ed Sullivan performance as well. I think is really well done because um, mm. that that is the only point where there is sort of energy in the room around them. The way that the the audience is filmed, uh, you know, the girls screaming and whatnot, and uh, the 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 way that they are, the way that we're shown they perform. Uh, as musicians is sort of above the din of this noise mm. it gives a, a, a good sense of that like it's quite palpable in a way that you know just makes you think why didn't you shoot the other <laughs> why didn't you show the the other performance scenes like this yeah you know yeah, just like like you you have a way to bring energy to the room in these scenes why didn't you do that before it may be that what they really were trying to show was how sort of crazy Beatlemania was, um, mm. as opposed to the sort of success or popularity that they'd had just in Liverpool. But I mean, if so, it's a it's a it's a strange decision. Uh, but you know that that scene that scene is well well framed. Yeah, I agree. It, it ends on a good note. It ends on a on a high. Yeah, I think as yeah. much as as much as it, I feel like what would have made more sense for me again. I'm, I always feel like I'm banging on about this idea of a sense of story in the films. What yeah. would have made more sense is if uh, the film had set up this ultimate goal of them going to America, yeah. So that that's the point at which the film ends on, and it, and it you know, then you're sort of rounding things off. But it, yeah. it's just it, as it stands, it just feels like we're just getting the next step of their success, mm. and then and then it's it ends, and it's for us to sort of yeah, you know. yeah, because yeah, it is the, the only sort of conflict and resolution that it's really uh, building is sort of towards the end when. It's suggested to you that John is unsure mm. about whether there's. You know, he says to Brian, "You know, I'm not sure about America, Brian. I don't know if we're going to go over well." I don't think that was true. I think they were all just by that point pretty confident that anything they did was going to go great. Yeah. And there's a weird scene where everyone is celebrating, having a party in a hotel room, and John turfs everyone out and smashes the place up and says, "Everyone, get out, get out!" You know, and you think. What what's what's up with you? Like, yeah, and that, the, the impetus for that was was Mimi arriving and saying, "Is this really what you want, John?" Right, and, and it's supposed to the idea is that it's led to this sort of real like character um, revelation, mm. uh, where it's like, "Oh, yeah, you're right. Maybe this isn't what I want." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but, he has like a, a moment of doubt, and yeah. then it takes Brian Epstein to be like, "No, no, this is great. Are you kidding me? Look, yeah, this yeah. is like you right. got champagne and and girls and fame and money. Like, yeah. so let's go on." And he's like, "Yeah, right." <laughs> yeah, 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 the end. Sounds good, actually. Yeah, the end. Credits, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Pretty much, literally. Right? <laughs> that is how it works. Yeah. yeah, but but it's strange in that. Um, yeah, it's it's it, either what it's doing is like as you say, just sort of setting up a conflict that is then immediately resolved mm. um, for the sake of having a conflict and resolving it, um, or it's suggesting that uh, John's heart was like a, a sort of fundamental lack of confidence about whether or not he and the Beatles were good enough, and I, I just, I mean. That that guy had 
a lot of issues and a lot of traumas. But whether or not the Beatles were a good band was not something he struggled with, I don't <laughs> yeah. think. I, th- I think he and all the rest of them were always very, very confident of how good they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, so we covered a, a lot of the elements of the film. There are two more things that I just wanted to touch on because they feel important. One is, what do we think of the portrayal of Lennon's relationship with Cynthia in the film? How do you think that goes? Because I, I, one thing I I will say is, Cynthia has a I think an ele- more elevated role in here in this film than she does in Backbeat. Yeah, but much less is made of the fact, understandably, because given the era, much less is made of uh, the idea that Len was going off to Hamburg and meeting loads of girls and doing things behind Cynthia's back that he probably shouldn't have done. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, the first thing is so I looked up. The, the, their age difference. So he is fourteen years older than Wendy Morgan, who is uh, who is playing Cynthia. So again, it makes those scenes just read very strangely. Yeah, and you know it. It feels like a a, a teacher seducing a pupil almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, because um, the whole thing is very like Lennon feels very sanitized in this film. Yeah, I think. And yeah. I think that doesn't help. Like it's that you know, it's the same thing. That sort of teacher vibe. Yeah, teacher vibe. I was thinking. So the scene in which she says she's pregnant. Yeah. I was just thinking. I was just trying to remember how that was handled because I can picture it, but. I, I I think he he basically just says, well, there's only one thing for it. We'll have to get married. Yes, and he says, but our kids are going to grow up without a father like me. That's it. Thing, right? yeah, 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 yeah. But but there there is the hint that, and I you know it's played relatively well in that there's a hint of you don't know Lennon's going to fly off the handle mm. at that. But I feel like maybe I'm maybe I'm putting that on the film because we know what kind of how, how unpredictable Lennon could be, and we've seen portrayals of him backbeat obviously coming straight to mind uh where you wouldn't know how that version of the character of lennon would handle that information yeah but actually in hindsight there's only one way this film is going to tell that part of the story right it's going to be lennon you know stepping up and doing the right thing the the other thing that i wanted to touch on as well uh, it feels really important that we talk it through is what do you think of the portrayal of brian epstein in the film i Thing. It's funny, you know, with portrayals of Brian, because I always think that he is often portrayed as like the, the, like he is his sexuality, his character is his sexuality, and, mm. and that that can lead to um, can lead to the feeling that there wasn't much more to him, um, which is you know, and, and it's I, I sort of get why they're doing it because it's you know it's a character trait that uh, you know for the time. There is obvious conflict there, you know. If he's being played by by an actor, there is obvious conflict in the fact that he's that he's gay and that that is illegal at the time. And you know, how are the Beatles, who are sort of you know rough and ready lads, going to react to this and all that kind of thing? And you know, they I think they took the piss out of him a bit, but you know, but they were fine with it, you know. Mm. And yeah, and I often feel like that sort of leads um, people to think of him as quite one note. I remember I remember watching anthology when it came out in the you know in the mid 90s and there's a montage about brian maybe after his death that is done so you've got to hide your love away and i remember thinking like there's an obvious reason why you've used that song Mm. but actually maybe there was 
it maybe it, it, it's a bit reductive, you know. Yeah, just yeah, thinking maybe. of him as you know as, as a, a guy who had to be a closeted gay man, you know, and that's the end of that. You know, much more to the guy's character. So yeah, I don't know his portrayal in this. It, I I understand why you go down that road, but yeah, it just it, it makes it a bit a little bit one note. I think. I think I think you're completely right. I think the um I think the 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 shame about how this is uh this character is is or how Brian is portrayed in the film is that because um there's that element of him hiding in sexuality, he's unsure of himself in every scene, and I think that does him a disservice. It, it doesn't really feel like he has sort of the business or managerial acumen that, that mm. he would have had at the yeah. time you know and he's kind of made out in the film that he's got resources and contacts and wealth that he can put into making the band's success yeah but not necessarily the expertise that he obviously had right there's a bit of a chancer almost isn't yeah. It? yeah yeah but and that doesn't really come across in, in the film right and yeah um you know when you look at when i the, the the little sort of footage i've seen of interviews with brian or where he's sort of talking directly on camera he seems very in control he's very confident he's he's always feels like he's bold i, yeah. I think in terms of how he talks about the band and yeah. um yeah. and about how he talks about their how they're going to be successful and continue to be successful it's a very different brian in this film he's he's constantly uh on the back foot yeah uh, from the group or he's cowering in some way yeah yeah um yeah it's a bit of a, bit of a shame the period as well where he's um, he's sort of hawking their demo around. So this period, um, he would in real life, he would go down to London on the train, mm. um, and he would be he'd have meetings arranged, and he'd kind of hawk around this demo tape, and then he'd come back up. And I think they all they all used to meet in a cafe near Lime Street Station at sort of you know at sort of midnight or something when he would get in, and he would come in and say, "Sorry, no, no luck this time, boys." Yeah. So here in this film, it's portrayed as they're one of the bits where Lennon is a bit acerbic. Yes. Uh, where where he says, well, we're we're fulfilling our side of the bargain, Brian. Why aren't you doing your job? You know, yeah. And I'm not sure there was much of that. I, it, it, I, that felt very... It felt like it came out of nowhere and also it was a bit of a... Um, uh, like that's just not... It, it didn't seem to ring true. No. Like what he's saying. Like, we're fulfilling our end of the bargain. What about you? What What do you mean? Your, what bargain? Like, you're, right. you're, you're writing and you're, you know being a band yeah. and this guy is trying to make you successful it's not like a trade-off it's not yeah. you know you're both working towards the same goal it's just yeah. a bit of an odd sort of stance to take in that moment yeah i, I think there, there are a couple of little missteps as, as well about how they were received by really good example actually is so nigel havers as uh you know the the, the two the two sort of um most prominent acting heavyweights in the in the whole thing nigel havers as george martin and uh uh, Nick Cotton, I've got to stop calling him that. John, John, it's John Altman. As, yes, um, that's right. Yeah, as, uh, so as, as George Harrison. Uh, so you know the two Georges and the famous line when they first meet. You know, is there anything you don't like, boys? Well, I don't like your tie for a start. Yeah, and the way that Nigel Havers as George Martin receives that line is to just go, "Oh, um, yes, uh, well, uh, uh, fine, okay." You know, it, you know, and sort of goes off and says, "Oh God, these are these are these are quite rough boys, aren't they?" You know, and and I in real life, that was a big icebreaker. Apparently, yeah, like it, they he they got to got to realize that this guy had a sense of humor and he enjoyed their sense of humor as yeah. well. I, you know, it wasn't a thing. 
where they were coming in and sort of di- disrupting this uh, this guy's whole routine where he's in there, you know, sort of sergeant major type and like yeah. doesn't like his routine disrupted and they come in and muck about, you know. It's, it, I but don't interesting think that's that, that, that that happens elsewhere in the film where he's listening to their demo and he can hear them talking uh, between songs yeah. um, and joking and he's like, oh, they've got a sense of humour. Yeah. Like they pick that, that element out in yeah. their relationship. But it's weird that that is presented in the film as saying that he's hearing on a tape as opposed to them actually interacting with each other. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, actually, yeah. So he hears on the tape, yeah, oh, they've got a bit of a sense of humour. It's yeah. one of the things why he agrees to ha- have them in the studio. And then they come into the studio and they have a sense of humour. <laughs> yes, and exactly. he goes, oh, I'm not so sure about these. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Very, this wasn't what I expected at all. But... Um, right, I have covered everything that I had to say about Birth of the Beatles. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, I would like to add that John Altman as George Harrison. Why is he doing a Birmingham accent? Like it's he's, he's playing George Harrison as Jeff Lynn. You know, it's it's, uh, it's not it's the birth of the travelling Wilburys. You know, <laughs> uh, other than that, no. Fine, okay. <laughs> but I, I thought it would be remiss to let the episode go That's by right. without pointing there, out. There are very few podcasts uh, in this day and age that are talking about the John Altman accent gate. No, so true. it's yeah. If if it falls on us to bring this to people's attention, then. So be it. Absolutely. Prepared to die on that hill. On that bombshell. <laughs> Let's wrap it up there. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. If you have watched Birth of the Beatles, if you enjoyed listening to us talk about it, please feel free to get in touch and follow us on uh, all the social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. Also, if you've enjoyed listening to us chat about this film or any other episode, please feel free to leave us a review. Uh, that'd be very kind of you. Otherwise, and until then, we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.